0: When we're young, everything seems possible. Boys and girls can dream of becoming a doctor or a marine biologist when they grow up. The difference between these children is purely biological. Gender just doesn't matter, yet. Education has the power to either stimulate children's talents and interests so they can achieve their full potential, or to reinforce limiting stereotypes. That's why VVOB, Forum for African Women Educationalists, and public education partners joined forces to develop a practical approach to gender responsive pedagogy for early childhood education. A toolkit that empowers teachers and school leaders to challenge gender stereotypes in the classroom. Small things like sharing examples that challenge gender stereotypes, encouraging all genders to take part in all activities, or bringing dolls into the construction corner can have a meaningful impact on an impressionable young mind. Join us. Challenge the gender divide. Download the GRP for ECE toolkit.
1: Welcome back on Education Matters. Yes, we took a long break, but we are back, and we're excited to continue with Season 2. Thank you to everyone who has been sending through their comments. Thank you to everyone who has been sending us feedback. We are still available on various platforms. So do share, do subscribe, and do comment, please, on our podcast. So I have something in store for you in this conversation. I am inspired by Mark Fisher's book called The Pink Lines, which takes an account of lived experiences of those who are on the receiving end of LGBT rights. The book itself symbolizes political and economic oppression of the LGBTQ community. Whilst recognition of the right is highly publicized, the experience only tells the stories of disempowerment, and that is the tricky line. I wondered how these experiences affect scholars in South Africa. So in this episode, I am in conversation with Hannah from VVOB and Liko Potoman from the Department of Basic Education. I thought I should start with Uliiko because he provides an overview and sort of like an umbrella point of view of what's happening regarding experiences of the LGBT community. We zoom into his thesis, which looks into the experiences of transgender learners. Take a listen.
2: My name is Lee Kopottoman. I am the Director for Social Cohesion and Equity in Education, employed by the Department of Basic Education. I am an occupational therapist by profession. I was trained in the University of the Western Cape and uh, I furthered my studies in inclusive education. I did my master's in the University of Johannesburg. That's where I was doing uh, research uh, on the experiences of transgender learners in heteronormative school environments. And that's where I really got to understand, you know, the issues relating to socio-educational inclusion of diverse sexual orientations, gender identity, expression, and sex characteristics.
1: So let's talk about the body of work that you have published. Why was it important for you not to just do your master's? So, Ena, why did you Hmm. decide to publish the body of
2: work that you published? Firstly, because of the fact that generally, uh, you know, at the University of Johannesburg, well, you are obliged to submit it for publication and hope that somebody picks it up and they publish it for you. So I guess really I was lucky because I was really just submitting it for publication, uh, you know, as part of the requirements, just, just for me to comply with the requirements of the master's program. But I was really fortunate to find a, 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 a publishing house or a journal that was able to pick it up and find it as an interesting study to be published in, in, the, in, in, in the special journal issue that they were doing at the time. For me to do that study, uh, Yoli, it was about uh, around about the time when the, the Department of Basic Education had just started to uh, communicate about the implementation of comprehensive sexuality education in life orientation. And there was a lot of pushback in our country about comprehensive sexuality education because then the social media started to publish um, fake news about comprehensive sexuality education, like saying that we are teaching children about masturbation, that uh, we are, Uh, We are saying to children that they must touch each other's private parts. Uh, There were a lot of absurd things that were said about comprehensive sexuality education, which was really to stand against the gains that we had made as a sector in terms of HIV prevention, prevention of early unintended pregnancies and prevention of gender-based violence. Uh, You know, we were so... We were so shocked as a sector at the time because we didn't understand that there would be anyone in the world, especially in South Africa, where all of these issues are problematic. there would be anyone to stand against anything that will help us to you know to, to deal with, with, with this issue. you know so through that process then I, I thought, okay, there's something that needs to to give here. and one of the big issues that were raised by those who were standing against comprehensive sexuality education at that time was that they were worried that we were exposing children to diversity. And they were worried that when you expose children to diversity, you are in fact giving them options so that they understand that there is a world outside of gender binaries, outside of heteronormativity. And, but that is the reality. The reality is that there is a world, there is a life outside of heteronormativity, there is a life outside of gender binaries and and cisgender identities. And so then it forced me then to begin to look at transgender learners in particular, because I would imagine that if I, as a cisgender person, I can identify the, the anomaly in this thing of heteronormativity and, and gender binaries. I would imagine what it feels like for a child who is transgender for real and who needs to navigate their way and their, and their growth and their thinking in a world that is heteronormative and that is governed or, 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 or guided by gender binaries. And then I developed that interest to say, okay, let's do a study, uh, let, let, let's find out how these children are navigating their way in schools given that schools are in their nature compulsory heteronormative school environments and yeah that's that's that that's how I then got to do that study that's how I got to publish it because within that study there are particular findings that lead us to certain understandings about what is happening in public ordinary schools Versus special schools.
1: Actually, let me pause you up, because there's a point that I just want to reflect to before we get to space, because schools are spaces in which children learn, but then also their experiences that they carry in that school environment. So, because you are based in the department, there is there's this assumption, obviously, and in the body of your work, in your profession, who includes like policy making, legislation, because you guys are the implementers and the drivers of that aspect, right? So we are aware as South Africans that the constitution protects these rights, gender rights. The South African Schools Act also in a way does also protect those rights because it has to be allied to the Constitution. But like you mentioned, there is a difference between legality and experience. It doesn't mean that just because something is legal, that the experience will feel as though it is illegal. You are permitted to be what you are being, basically. So I wondered, Ubana, does the experience of learners really match legality when it comes to gender in South Africa, based on your research, briefly?
2: You know, uh, what we discovered is that, yes, as much as the constitutional and legislative and legal and policy framework of this country is affirming to diversity, the practice and the experience on the ground is not matching constitutional, legislative, legal, and policy uh, terrain. In fact, I think what I would say is that what we discovered is that issue of discrimination and prejudice come to play. And unfortunately, you can't legislate homophobia or transphobia at some level, as much as there is a clear standpoint in this country, constitutionally about discrimination and prejudice. But when it happens, it's not taken as illegal. It's not illegal to to be homophobic is not illegal. And that's where the problem is that sometimes the gatekeepers of the law and the gatekeepers of public administration, uh, or rather let me say the law is in the hands of people who are supposed to implement it. And those people, unfortunately, they come with their own biases and judgments. And those biases and judgments, sometimes they come to play and they tend to prevent them from implementing the law in its full course.
1: And then Ngok, I'm just thinking about, actually, we're talking about transgender learners or scholars, but who is a transgender learner for a person who doesn't know? Because that can easily be confused with being gay or lesbian, but who is transgender? What does transgender mean?
2: So, uh... In my study, I do actually get to a point where we begin to define transgender identities. And uh, we say that, that transgender identities refer to those individuals whose biological sex does not align with socially constructed binary gender markers of what is supposed to be male and what is supposed to be female. And, and, and therefore, the expectation is that those who are born, for example, with a penis will assume a male gender, and those who are born with a vagina would then assume a female role. And then these binaries, you know, they are associated with, with socially scripted gender roles and behavioral expectations. And in many societies, when an individual transgresses this alignment, then the person is subjected to rejection, discrimination, and in many instances, even violence. So really a transgender identity refers to somebody who's born primarily in terms of genitalia, they've got a particular uh, marker biologically that, uh, that, that, that categorizes them as male or female. But in terms of the sense of self and how the person wants to express their gender, you find that then uh, in terms of their gender, the way that they want to express that uh, they, themselves as a gender does not quite correspond with what they have in terms of their sex, in terms of their genitalia. So you find that then a, a child has, was born with a penis, uh, but then the, the, the child feels like they are a girl and they, they preferred that they, they would be regarded as a girl, as a female, And then that's when we then refer to them as a transgender female, because all of it is is psychological. It is a a sense of identity. It is embedded in who they are. And what the transgender people really are trying to, um, to teach us is that just because the genital is a particular sex does not necessarily mean that we must assume that the gender of that person is going to be that. That's what makes them transgender.
1: Perfect, oh my gosh, you explained it clearly because now this ties to what is body as a space in terms of what is gender identity? What is gender expression? How are those things different from each other? So one of your key themes from that came out from the research was body as a space, clothing and grooming. Right. And mm-hmm. immediately when I read that, without even going into further detail, it's like, oh my gosh, uniform. I'm not even yeah. talking about greater detail, but just uniform, how it would exclude a transgender person. So please elaborate more on that.
2: It, within that finding finding of the body as a space, Yoli, we are we are trying to, to say that the The spaces of discrimination are not spatial. They're not in the environment. We are trying to say that the spaces of discrimination can also be within the body of the transgender identity, where the transgender identity or the, the person who is identifying as transgender sometimes may feel violated and limited in terms of what they can do with their bodies on their bodies, in their bodies, and how far they can go with that. Because we're saying that the body is a space that is used for expression of an identity. And I'm making an example here, and let, let, if we slightly just get outside of transgender identities. How do you see a nurse? Because a nurse dresses in a particular way, and that's what makes them a nurse. How do you see a policeman a policeman dresses in a particular way and when they're dressed in that particular way, they become full in their identity as a policeman. The same with a soldier or a, a, a person who works for, for the defense force or the army. The same with um, a, you know, the clergy at a church. They've got to wear particular things that, so that they, they, they get into character so that in that character they can then express their identity as that character. They can express even their responsibilities and obligations as that character. And so when it comes to transgender children, when it comes to the body as a space, we're saying that you, okay, in terms of your genitalia, let's say in terms of your genitalia, your sex is male, but in in terms of your gender and your gender expression, your gender identity is female. And so if I continue to place a demand and a law on you that says that because of your genitalia, this is what you shall wear, you will forever be out of character. You will forever be a non-affirmed character, a non-affirmed identity, because you are wearing things that do not allow you to express your gender in the way that you prefer to express it in terms of your identity. And so it becomes utterly important that when we we use and when we try to understand the body as a space, we understand that in terms of clothing and grooming, it's not just preference, because I think people understand the issue of grooming as a preference, it's not just preference, but in actual fact, it is about using the body as a space of expression of gender. So we can't trivialize it to say, you you prefer to wear boys clothing or you prefer to wear girls clothing it's not about that it's really about ensuring that that body as a space is comfortable and is safe and it is affirming to one's identity and to one's psychological being
1: Mm, mm, mm because also it is that body in the space that experiences other spaces, such as the classroom and all other environments basically.
2: Absolutely because then once I am in in full character, I'm then able to participate in activities of daily living uh, in, in leisure activities and in work activities because I am in full, in full identity, you know, and if I'm not, then I will not be able to navigate those spatial spaces as, you know, as optimally as I would if I was in my full body identity.
1: And then there's this part uh, in the findings where there's basically comparative uh, analysis between a special needs school and the mainstream school. What would you say were the key findings for you from that from that comparative analysis?
2: Are unisex basically, gray pants, they've got track suits, and those are worn by every other child. And so transgender children who were coming from those special schools where we draw where we drew our participants, didn't have an issue of the body as a space when it comes to school uniforms because they wear unisex uniforms. They don't have a separation. And then the other thing was that we found that when it comes to um, understanding that transgender children prefer to be, um, you know, to be addressed in a particular way, they prefer to do particular things in a particular way. Special schools were much more amenable to allow them the space to do that, to allow them the space to participate in activities that they needed to participate in, as opposed to public ordinary schools. And we then realized that it's because special schools are used to dealing with difference and diversity, because they deal with it in terms of race, in terms of disability even in terms of level of disability, because level of disability is not the same. So they are used to differentiation of delivery of curriculum and co-curricular programs. And so when it comes to transgender learners who want things different or differently, special schools were amenable to that because they are used to it. But public ordinary schools are not used to it because they're so used to dealing with the homogeneous group. That when you bring in elements of um, a, a diversity and inclusion, they really battle because they're not used to doing that all the time. And we also found that uh, because of their amenability I to you know to difference, you find that they were even able to uh, you know like the teachers in those schools were able to manage uh, you know, and prevent discrimination because I guess they anticipated. Whereas in public schools, they, there was a sense that they wait for discrimination and prejudice to take place and then they react to that. So there was a lot of um, a, a, a proactivity in, in, in special schools about dealing with the issue of prejudice and discrimination because teachers were able to say, this is so-and-so, uh, he is different in this way, or she is different in this way. And so please let us support, let us be affirming. Anyone who transgresses this rule would have to deal with me, that kind of. So you can see that they anticipate it, and so they are proactive about it. But in, 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 in public ordinary schools, really it's just a reactional thing. And uh, you know, they, they, they wait to be approached by parents, or, or sometimes they enforce their ways of doing things on children without really understanding the, 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 the diversity and differentiation that they, that they require as, as transgender learners. Mm-hmm. And that's the beauty
1: of diversity because really look at how it really influenced the policy at a special needs school. So because get this beauty in policy, There are draft guidelines for social education inclusion of diverse sexual orientation, gender identities, expression, and sex characteristics in schools.
2: What is this Mm. guideline about? So the guideline that we're currently now consulting on, which is not yet published, is a guideline that seeks to guide schools on exactly the issue you started with Yoli, you said that, Liko, the constitution is there, the legislation is there, the different policies are there, but why are we still grappling with this issue of inclusion? And the, the answer to that is that it's because the pieces of information are lying in the different pieces of legislation and policy and et cetera, et cetera. And so, you kind of need an instrument that will guide schools on how to use the different pieces of information that is lying in the different pieces of of law. You know, generally, I would refer to constitution and the legislation and the policies as the law. The different provisions that are in those different pieces of the law, an instrument that pulls all of them together, that then guides you on how to apply it so that you are, you are more uh, inclusive of children who have got diverse sexual orientations, gender identity and expression, and sex characteristics. So it guides you on what to do inside the classroom, on the school grounds, and in the sports, uh, You know uniforms, uh, even in the delivery of the curriculum itself, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it just guides you on how best you can be more inclusive, especially when you know that you've got children uh, who are of diverse sexual orientation and gender identity.
1: Before we close, I want to know, you've been with the department for a number of years, but still there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But what are your hopes and dreams for the sector?
2: Uh Well, it's so funny because we've had this conversation with uh, Professor Anthony Brown, who, is, who was supervising me in this study. And we, we were talking about the same thing, and I said that I don't see, you know, just listening to what these children were sharing with us in terms of what is happening at the school level, I don't see us winning this battle of inclusion. And it said that this button is not going to be worn uh, with one document or with one seminar or with one research report. You know, this is an ongoing uh, mission for all those who work in the space of inclusion for children. So where we come from as a country, we come from a space where firstly, there wasn't even recognition of this kind of diversity, let alone conversation about it. It wasn't recognized that it exists. So there was no recognition, there was no acknowledgement that we have it. And so sometimes when we get overwhelmed, we need to go back and look at where we come from so that we can realize that we are making some effort and, and we're making effort in the right direction that at least now, there is recognition and there is acknowledgement. And right now we are at a space as a sector where not only now are we recognizing and acknowledging it, but we are open to engage about it. Whereas in the past, we're not so open to engage about it. And so the hopes for the future for me then, taking it a step further would be now that we recognize and we acknowledge it, and that we are now in, we are open to engage and dialogue about it. I hope for a time where we are consciously taking decisions and taking administrative action to ensure that something is done about it, because engaging about it only and acknowledging it is not enough. We actually need to do something about it to change the sector so that the sector is more affirming to children of diverse sexual orientations and gender identities. That's what I hope for the future.
1: Education Matters. Book-inspired conversations.
3: My name is Hannah, and I work for a development organization called VVOB. We have programs, uh, support programs in about 10 different countries, uh, but I am based in South Africa, uh, where I am a strategic education advisor across several programs, including uh, a project that we did over two years, which is focused on gender. Mm, I read so
1: much, but before we get to what it is that you do regarding gender, I want to start the conversation with a conversation that I had with my siblings so my sister did the science stream in high school when I asked her does physical science sound and feel like a subject that can be taught by women for girl children and then she said that the examples in physical science and chemistry relate around cars. And I thought to myself, oh, okay, that means a boy child would relate better to science by virtue of them playing with motor cars, doing all of those things, because they are taught from a young age that those are their toys. They are not girl toys. Do you get me? So I wondered why, how, or do gender stereotypes really influence learning outcomes?
3: Do Yolisa, uh, and it's it's like you're referring to you know what happens when children are very young from a very young age already. Children will kind of develop a mindset and a way of thinking um, through what happens around them. Right? They will um, grow up to think that certain things are for boys, certain things are for girls, certain professions, for example, are for men and other professions are for women. And it happens in quite an unconscious way sometimes. So there's been research that was done with children that were six years old who would already very clearly be thinking that girls are not as good at maths as boys are. Whereas there's nothing to show that that is the case in terms of learning outcomes uh, at that young age. So it's really quite sad that uh, that that happens. Um, and, And yeah, you would find children seem to be gravitating towards certain toys, but it's actually also about how people around them, the adults around them, the caregivers, the teachers are sort of encouraging them to behave in a certain way, or to play with particular toys, or play particular games that they unconsciously also think are more suited to boys or more suited to girls.
1: That's why gender responsive pedagogy would be important in this instance, right? So that's the program that you guys are implementing or you implemented as a pilot, right, in KZN. But first, before we get to the pilot, what does gender responsive... How do you pronounce it?
3: Pedagogy. Pedagogy. Well, it's pronounced in different ways. <laughs> uh, but it's basically, it's basically about, first of all, teachers becoming um, more conscious about the, very, uh, the biases that they might hold to themselves, right? Um, so clearly, I think everyone would agree that... So when they are playing... Quite obviously, the more variety there is in that play, whether it is with the toys, the stories, other learning materials, whether it is about playing with many different children um, or whether it is about, you know, being involved in different kinds of games. All of those different activities mean that children are learning and from Mm -hmm. those different activities and toys and playing with different children, they will learn different things. So if children, for example, never get to really play with building blocks, let's say, or let me put it the other way around. When children play with building blocks, they're learning many different things from that. They will learn spatial relations. um, They will learn about um, physics in practice, really. Um, and things like that. But you will often see in an early childhood classroom that the boys are the ones who will be playing in the construction corner. Um, And the girls are more like playing in with pretend play or with dolls. So gender responsive pedagogy is first of all about teachers becoming more aware of that. So becoming more aware of biases and the result that that has. So if they just go along with with that, so, you know, you're setting up girl children to become carers, which is a good thing. Um, you're setting up boys to become very good, for example, with motor skills, with spatial relations, and things like that, which is also very good. But it would be great if all children developed, you know, a wide variety of different skills. So as teachers become more aware of that, um, there are different ways that they can make that part of their teaching you know, that, that greater awareness of, you know, the power that they hold as teachers to, to ensure that gender stereotypes and gender biases and putting children in boxes is not something that is going to impede how much children learn. Um, and teachers can then do that in their teaching in different ways. And that is what we refer to as pedagogy. So a gender responsive pedagogy could mean that a teacher would um, would use the learning environment in the classroom a uh, gender responsive way so that's for example in an early childhood classroom you would often have or you should have um, different what they call learning areas so it's where children can go and play particular types of materials so you 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 can find a construction corner you can find a pretend play corner you So it's about um, how teachers would set up the learning environments in those learning corners and looking to make it attractive to all children. So you don't have boys gravitating to one corner all the time and girls to another, but really ensuring that, you know, all children um, will get to engage with all the different learning areas and it's fun and it's interesting and it attracts the children to those corners. So that's one way. Another way would be in how the teacher would use um, different learning materials. So, for example, a teacher would read a story in preparation, would read a story first before using it with the children to check, you know, am am I sending a message that is stereotyped if I'm using this particular story? Let's say it's about a story about a prince on a horse saving a princess from a tower, right? What kind of message are you giving children when that is the only story they're going to hear? Um, Many teachers have very few materials in their classrooms. So it's not about throwing away the stories that have those gender stereotypes, but thinking around how can I now work with the children in helping them think around the stereotypes. So in this example of the prince and the princess, the teacher could ask questions whether, you know, it could be the prince who's in the tower and the princess who saves him. Um, so that's just a few examples of how teachers could in their teaching be working um, in a more gender responsive way. So that is indeed something that we uh, worked on in a program um, in case at for the past two years.
1: What I like about it, it says that, we're not saying that gender stereotypes don't exist. We're not saying that they will not exist in future, but we are saying we should be able to respond to how those stereotypes affect us in the learning process, basically. And also what I like about what you said is when you were making examples of how unconscious learning happens, It also means the downfall of unconscious learning that also happens is children learn stereotypes. My other question to you, because teachers, right, belong in these communities that are very stereotypical, is your program targeted at teachers? And what sort of support do teachers receive? Because it's sort of like being in a community now where you are going to change the way you speak, you're not going to say women just belong in the kitchen anymore. You're not going to say that men should work anymore. You're not going to, because learning sort of empowers you in the process. But in terms of the investment that you guys have made, what sort of investment has been made to sort of help, I wouldn't say change the mindset, but help enlighten someone or a teacher in that community about gender stereotypes?
3: Yeah, so um, we did that through professional development. Uh, We worked very closely with um, early childhood practitioners um, working in early childhood centers. We worked in the pilot, we worked with about 200 of them. And when I say professional development, it's a combination of different things. So first of all, we developed a toolkit, a toolkit with materials um, that are very practical. It's materials, I mean, um, uh, handbooks, right? So there's guides, uh, there's an online course as well with very practical hints and tips for teachers that they can try out in their classroom. So we developed that material and then we offered training. So we offered a two and a half day training. Now, unfortunately, when um, the piloting case then took place, uh, there was COVID. Um, I know there still is COVID, but there were very um, severe lockdown levels. So initially we had hoped to have several training moments with the teachers. Um, it turned out that um, we did a two and a half day training, um, very interactive. Um, helping, first of all, helping teachers to become more aware of their um, own often unconscious gender biases. And it was really great to see how quickly um, those educators were having, you know, like, aha moments. They would say like, oh, by doing this particular thing in my classroom, you know, I have, um, you know, given children certain messages. Like, so for example, it would be uh, some aha moments would be like, oh, I always used to greet children as they come into the classroom. I would say things to the girls that would be commenting on how pretty they were looking, what a beautiful dress they were wearing. And when I would greet the boys, I would be talking about how strong they looked today. Um, so becoming very quickly aware of you know, the unconscious mes- messages that they had been putting out. So that was really great to see. And then we would go into you know, very practical exercises of how can you work with storybooks, um, uh, practicing how um, you could uh, engage in interactions with children uh, around uh, gender issues at that very young age. Um, and then after that training happened, we, um, we offered follow-up support because I think we all know that a once-off training You know you now go back to your classroom and you kind of forget um quite a bit of it or you're now in isolation and you're not too sure how to move forward with something but there's no one to reach out to so there was follow-up support provided Um, and that happened both face-to-face so there would be groups of teachers coming together uh, with a facilitator where they could ask their questions Um, They could also learn from each other, they could learn a lot from each other in in those moments, and we also set up WhatsApp groups where they could you know post questions or post photographs of things that they changed in their classrooms uh, to ask other people what they thought about it and uh, things like that. Um, So that's kind of in a nutshell what we what we offered. and that, all of that happened over a period of about six months. So for about six months, the teachers were supported around issues of gender. And I must maybe mention, it's really about early childhood, right? So we worked with um, practitioners from early childhood centers.
1: Yeah. do you guys intend on scaling up the program?
3: Actually, that is already happening. Oh, great. Um, <laughs> yeah. So as so VVOB, actually, um, we're not an organization that goes out into the field and just does these things and then pulls out. We actually work very closely with the Department of Basic Education and in this, in this particular project with the Department of Education in KZN. Right. So everything that we do, we do with them and we do, you know, in support of 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 um, priorities that they would want to scale up. So it's happened in two different ways. So in case uh, that after the pilot uh, was implemented, the the subject advisors. So these are officials from within uh, the Department of, of Education um, that have a particular focus on supporting the early childhood curriculum they received training and then they made plans to roll out uh, training to more teachers than the ones that were reached in the pilot. So in the pilot, we reached about 200 uh, practitioners. The department then went on and up to date, they've, they've trained over 3,000 ta- 3, additional teachers in case at N around this. Um, then the second way is that the Department of Basic Education at national level is rolling out this training in other provinces as well. So again, the officials in the system received training, um, and currently the training is underway in four additional provinces. It's the Free State, the Eastern Cape, um, Northwest, and each province is targeting a thousand uh, uh, teachers and practitioners early childhood grade are and sometimes even um, going into the foundation phase. So that is definitely going on and the department, yeah, they're kind of in it for a longer period of time. So they also want to uh, scale up training to to all of the provinces, actually.
1: Yeah, no, it's actually good. I'm even happy that they even took up the program themselves uh, because it means that good work has been done from the pilot, right? And then um, I know that many people do not or are not aware of this, but there's a lot of investment that is done in education to research programs. I was interested in maybe from your perspective, what were your key highlights from the research that was done from the pilot?
3: Yeah, so you're right, uh, Yolisa. The whole purpose of doing that pilot was to learn lessons, right? About whether um, the combination of having developed those materials and then doing offering training and other professional development to practitioners is anything actually changing, right? Is it actually helping teachers adapt things in in their teaching? So we did do um, a, a research. And the findings of it were really quite um, quite positive. Um, also, thinking of you know we, the, the um, actual training for teachers and that support to teachers took place over such a short period of time, right? It just was like over six months. So we saw huge, really significant impact at the level of um, attitudes and mindsets. So the way that that was tested was through a survey. So where there was uh, um, kind of statements that were given to teachers. Um, I'll I'll just give an example. A statement would be something like, a boy should not dress up as a princess in pretend play. Um, And we saw a very significant shift in the thinking around statements like that. Um, So that that survey was done at the start. So before the training took place. And then again, after we also, worked with the control group. So that means people who did not receive the intervention, they were asked the same question so that we could see um, whether, uh, you know, how, how the intervention was comparing to people who did not receive it. So attitudes was one part that really did uh, change uh, quite significantly. Um, then also in terms of the practices that were, um, being observed in the classroom. So our research partner actually went into the classrooms um, where they were looking at different aspects of gender responsive pedagogy. So they would be looking at the materials that were there, how the teacher was interacting with the children, the kinds of activities that she would do, um, the visuals on the wall, the way the learning environment was set up. Um, And again, so the observation was done in um, intervention schools and in control schools. And again, we saw a very significant change actually across all of those different aspects um, in the observation guides that that was used. And then thirdly, but it's one where I think uh, more work um, needs to be done, is we asked the Practitioners and also the leaders of the centers, because the the ECD uh, center leadership was also involved uh, in this pilot, so they also received some training um, and were brought together to do some reflection. We really need to think around how can they support their teachers as they as they um, you know try to make changes in their in their practice. Um, so we we asked them what they were seeing, like whether the behavior of children in the classroom was changing. Way that they reported about that was very kind of positive. So they would really say like, you know, we see really big changes happening. So it would be, for example, you know, where we would see, um, you know, boys only playing with boys that is not changing. And we're seeing more like mixed groups of children playing together, or, you know, where boys never used to go and play with the dolls, we now see boys going to play with the dolls more often. But the but the thing is that we did not, or, or our research partner did not observe this directly. Uh, it wasn't part of the research protocol. So it's reported data by the teachers. So the reliability of that data isn't as strong. Um, so that's maybe something that we could do more work about uh, around, but it's definitely um, also quite promising to see that it's actually leading to changes in how children uh, play with each other, how they play, which kinds of toys they play with and what kind of play uh, they engage in.
1: Sounds good to me, (laughs) really sounds good. And then uh, I would like to know,
3: what are your hopes and dreams for the sector? Just education. No, I think in the context uh, of South Africa, Um, what I'm really liking at the moment is that there's a lot of uh, focus and prioritization of the foundation. Um, I think quite typically, um, you know, as a nation, there's a lot of, you know, focus and attention uh, at the metric level, which is understandable, right? Because that's where you know, children and youth will go out into the world, and you know that really determines um, their potential future. But actually, the realization that it happens at a much younger age, um, and that if we don't get it right uh, at the foundation, um, you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna win, and we're not gonna get it right for many of of our children and youth. So that that that, that understanding that, um, and and, and there's a lot of data around this as well, it's like when children are struggling in the foundation phase, their chances of making it become very, very slim. Um, Also taking into account that children don't come into the education system all with the same kind of background, right? Right. And some children come into, well, many children in South Africa come into the education system with severe disadvantages. And that is something that the education system is becoming more responsive to and really recognizing that that is something that the system um, needs to be working on. So there's interventions around early grade reading, about strengthening foundational mathematics, about strengthening learning through play at that young age. Um, and I think that is really encouraging um, that that is happening. So I hope, and I wish that in the longer term, um, that would mean um, inequalities that there are in the system, in the education system, that those can, you know, be combated, and that that um, you know more of South Africa's population and, and children are are going to be benefiting and actually um, having a brighter future.
1: That's the end of our fourth episode. Thank you to Hannah and Liko for providing simple and practical insights. To you, our valued listener, thank you for making the time to catch up on Education Matters.